Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Jennifer Leonard, today's guest, is the University of Penn Cary Law School's Chief Innovation Officer. She's also the Executive Director of the Future of the Profession Initiative. While there are other top law schools that have groups like the Future of the Profession, I'm not aware of any that have a formal Chief Innovation Officer. In this leadership role, Jen advances projects that evolve our understanding of the skills and knowledge lawyers need to thrive in a rapidly changing professional landscape. She and her colleagues also develop multidisciplinary projects that engage law students with creative thinkers from the Wharton School, Penn Engineering, the School of Nursing, and more to design solutions and make civil legal systems more accessible. In today's episode, you'll hear about Jennifer's groundbreaking role as the first and only chief innovation officer at a law school, how she's using design thinking to collaborate across Penn and with peers at other law schools, and her advice for creative law students who want to enter the world of big law, and her advice for those firms. It was a great conversation. I hope you find it as interesting as did I. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Hi, it's great to be with you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for making time. So for those of you who don't know, you're the Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Pennsylvania Cary School of Law, as well as being Executive Director of the Future of the Profession Initiative, as well as teaching some classes, as well as running a consulting business, as well as being involved in issues around mental health and the profession. So we've got a laundry list of things to talk about, but let's start with your role as Chief Innovation Officer. That's a title that's become fairly familiar in big law firms. But how common is it in the law school environment? To my knowledge, I remain the only chief innovation officer at an American law school. So I could be wrong about that, but I have not met another chief innovation officer. I've not heard of the title being used (laughs) elsewhere. So let's start with what is the role involved and then also talk about how it came to be in existence Sure, absolutely. Um, so maybe I can start with your second question because it sort of leads into the the first question. It came into existence because in all the way back in 2018, pre a lot of events in the world, our dean really wanted to think about the rapidly changing environment around us and what that meant for lawyers and their clients and what that meant for law schools in particular. So he asked me to lead a cross-departmental working group of people from the faculty, from the administrative side, from our libraries, um, our legal practice skills faculty, to explore what innovation looks like in a law school context. We spent about six months doing that. And I think when we started, there were about 26 law school innovation centers around the country. And by the time we finished and launched our project, there were 32, which in the world of law schools, that's huge proliferation and change in a relatively short period of time. We're not really known for our rapid pace of change. And so we really looked at the definition of innovation across the country, which ranged from really highly focused on technology to focused on project-based innovative design of responsiveness to like market-based projects like Law Without Walls at the University of Miami, for example, where projects are proposed and the students respond to those through innovative efforts to more executive education programming that advances the skill set of alumni and practicing attorneys. What we really wanted to do was play to the strengths at Penn, which include Ben Franklin's dual aims in founding the University of Pennsylvania, which were to be highly interdisciplinary in everything that we do, and to take all of our high-minded academic research and translate it for use in the real world. 
So everything that we do is interdisciplinary. We learn from our colleagues around Penn's campus. We have deep relationships with engineering, nursing, Wharton, education, all across campus. And then we try to take what our faculty are researching about and the deficiencies in civil legal systems and develop projects that aim to transform and respond to those deficiencies. So I'll stop there because I know that was a lot, but that is sort of the origin story of FPI or the Future of the Profession Initiative. And how much of your work is this, what I would describe as external facing, the deficiencies in the external legal system, the skill sets students need to go out into the world, and how much of it is internal facing, the way classes are taught, the type of curriculum the law school should have, et cetera? I would say if I were to break it down in percentages, I would say it's 60 to 65% external and the balance internal. We try to focus on areas where we can make real impact. And the sort of core curriculum in law schools is very sort of set in stone. So we we know that we're not going to make much movement there. But what we can do is introduce courses in the upper level. All of my colleagues and I teach classes at the law school focused on these issues. But then we really want to be communicating with the profession externally. And the reason that we want to be doing that is because as the world becomes more complex, as technology and a lot of other trends accelerate, law schools, I think, have an obligation to be on top of that change and to be understanding it and communicating it with people in the profession so that we can take that information back to the law school and develop responsive programs and curricula that help our students understand the change and prepare them with the mindsets and tools that they need to actually be able to navigate an ambiguous future that a lot of previous generations didn't have to really think about as much. So the law school environment is not known as a particularly agile or rapidly evolving environment. What was the change dynamic like for you in terms of creating this position and these efforts with Penn? Obviously, you had the support of the dean, which is critical. But how did you go about building support internally? I was really fortunate because I'd been at the law school overseeing our professional, our law student professional development programming for about five years when I took on this task. So I had a lot of relationships with my colleagues around the building. And I knew there was a big community of people who wanted to make progress in legal education, wanted to think differently about things like attorney health and well-being, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, about teaching new skills and raising awareness about the deficiencies in our systems and systems redesign. So that was the community that sort of gave birth to this idea together. And so when I say that law schools are slow to change and the curriculum is difficult to change, I mean that across the board at all American law schools. I think that's pretty common. I'm lucky in my community that I have a lot of people that really want to be known as a school that is future-oriented and forward-thinking. Give us a, an example or two of the last two or three years of, of sort of, if you say, okay, what have you accomplished in this role? Give us an example or two of things you sort of are proud of that you've accomplished in what's actually a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I think I think the thing that I'm most proud of are the people that work on this initiative and the people that started at the law school and already worked there and continue to contribute to it, but also the people we've been able to recruit because they're really interested in the unique nature of what we're doing at Penn. So that includes three of my colleagues, Jim Sandman, who was managing partner of Arnold and Porter, then became president of Legal Services Corporation, is one of our most esteemed alums and served on our advisory board when we were forming FPI. And then formally came on board now and spends most of his time 
We just came from a faculty retreat to present to the faculty about the work that we're doing. He spends most of his time advocating for regulatory reform for the purposes of expanding access to justice. And he's just a legend in the legal profession. So to have him on our team full-time is fantastic. Yeah, you're very lucky. Jim's an incredible guy. And then we most recently welcomed to our team the Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick, who is just a fierce talent, brilliant person, really interested in thinking and reimagining legal systems. And so that is another amazing opportunity for us to strengthen everything that we do. And we also have our other colleague, Miguel Willis, who is uh, the executive director of the Access to Justice Tech Fellowship Program, which is a summer fellowship that teaches law students how to use data technology and design thinking to propose scalable solutions to better serve the public. So that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of is just the team that we've been able to build. I'm also proud of the events that we've been able to host right before the pandemic. We had a two-day amazing event at the Pennovation Center on Penn's campus where we welcomed our colleagues from the healthcare system to do presentations for us about what innovation has looked like in that industry over the last 40 years, what the good and bad outcomes have been and what we can learn from that. And we have a conference coming up now that we're back in person again, a two-day conference at the Fillmore here in Philadelphia, where we're going to welcome our colleagues from the School of Design and Nursing to teach us how to use human-centered design to better develop legal service delivery solutions. So I think that those are the things I'm most proud of. Well, those are amazing things, particularly the all-star team you've developed. Jim is an incredible talent. Justice McCormick is an incredibly impressive person in the business. And and while I I don't know your third colleague, equally impressive, I'm certain. If you don't know him yet, you will know him. And we have a phenomenal advisory board who are volunteers and alumni who populate all different roles across the profession. And they meet with us monthly to tell us what they're seeing on the ground so that we can take that information and feed it into the projects that we're developing. Tell me a little bit more about how you've uh, worked with these other disciplines. Kat Moon was on a little while ago and was talking about her work with radiology, which I thought was fascinating. And it's amazing to me what we can learn from other professions if we're willing to do it. Talk a little bit about that dynamic. Well, first, I will say that Cat Moon inspired the class that I teach, and she was kind enough to give me the syllabus for her legal design class. And I used her syllabus and the syllabus of the chief innovation officer at Penn Nursing and was essentially able to use find and replace nursing with legal services and come up with a preliminary draft of the syllabus because the design thinking framework is so flexible that we can use it across disciplines. So Kat is amazing. Kat is coming to our conference and she is going to lead with my colleague from Penn Nursing and my colleague from Weitzman School of Design and me what I think is in history, the first time we will attempt to have a 300-person masterclass in human-centered design to reimagine the future of law firms. So Kat's awesome. Yes, yes, she is. I'm going to get us off track a little bit, but let's stick on that a little bit. When you talk about imagining the future of law firms, that's such an interesting topic to me because obviously I grew up in a law firm environment. But that paints with such a broad brush. You know, you've got legal clinics, you've got big law firms, you've got mid-sized law firms, you've got small law firms, sole practitioners. Each one is existing in a different ecosphere. How do you make a a masterclass of 300 relevant to those various segments of the business? Yeah, it's a great question. And what we actually did was we narrowed the focus for purposes of this masterclass because we wanted the type of organization that is sort of monolithic in its model. There are obviously cultural differences, differences in the types of practice areas. 
But for purposes of simplifying the exercise, we wanted the audience to be able to understand what the type of organization is. So we're focusing here on a big law model because I think it's something that the audience will understand some of the challenges around. They're big enough that the challenge that we're attempting to tackle, which is as we're coming out of the pandemic, as we're thinking about a post-COVID work environment, how are we now taking what we learned over the last few years and empathizing with all the different experiences? Like The interesting thing about the pandemic is that it affected everyone, but it affected everyone completely differently. So as firms are thinking about what that next model looks like, it's no longer the case that when you come in, you just sort of expect the model that we developed in the 50s of everybody comes to the same building and is there no matter what. We have this great opportunity, but what we want to show on stage at the conference, and we will do through empathy interviews with four different typical personas in a law firm, is how complicated, as you well know, it is to come up with a design that actually works for a lot of the people in the firm. And I think we're very focused on creating more inclusive environments through what we do as an initiative. And I think by hearing the experiences of people who traditionally may have had to leave practice for different reasons, what they would like to see in the next iteration of big law working environments will help fuel some ideation later in the session of some new ideas and help the lawyers in the audience see how the framework works and also start to flex their creative muscles and think a little bit differently than the model we're all accustomed to. How did you boil it down to four personas? And I, I, that sounds like a facetious question. I don't mean it that way because there's, as you said, there's so many nuances. There's so many stakeholders involved from associates to junior partners, to senior partners, to allied professionals, to clients, to you sort of go down the list. Walk me through your, your thought process for how you got to four personas. How did you design this session? Yeah, it's the perfect question because that is the challenge really is that if you're going to use human-centered design to think about law firms of the future, it becomes really complicated really quickly because you can have thousands of different experiences that you're drawing information from. We really wanted to demonstrate the framework itself so that firms could take that and use it as they would like to or legal services organizations. And my colleague, Marion, who's the chief innovation officer at Penn Nursing, as we were hashing this out, she said, I think this is going, I think my original vision was to have seven personas represented. And she said, this is going to become too complicated for the audience to absorb all of this different information when we're just trying to demonstrate what an empathy interview looks like. Marion recommended three personas. Being an event planner, I know that somebody is almost certain to back out at the last minute. So I wanted four just to make sure that if that happened, we have three on stage. So we negotiated a truce on that one. So we have four. What we're going to do is demonstrate what an empathy interview looks like with all four or three if somebody drops out. And then for purposes of the exercise, we're just going to pick one of those personas to focus on as we move through the rest of the steps so that the audience can focus on one set of facts and experiences to move through the other stages. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a fabulous conference and it'll be great to get people back together in person again, won't it? Oh, I can't wait. Our last conference was February 27th and 28th of 2020. And the way that we framed that conference was the next 10 years would challenge the profession like it's never been challenged before. And we really could have said the next 10 weeks, but we didn't know at the time. Um, the silver <laughs> lining, I suppose, is that everybody tells me that it's the last normal thing that they remember doing before COVID. So we're really excited to reconvene. We're doing a video project to sort of show 
the many, many things that have happened in the under three years since we last gathered and to try and balance what could be a horror movie based on everything we've experienced with optimism, which is infused into everything that we do. We're going to frame the conference as a real opportunity. Last time around, you know, we had a Murray band of people who really wanted to innovate and are already on board with it. This time, I think we have more ears open because of the last couple of years and more people who understand that we need to change and are willing to learn how to do that well from other disciplines. Do you think that difference in momentum that you're talking about is sustainable or is it just an immediate reaction to the pandemic? I think it's such a lawyer's answer. I think it depends on the state of the world. I mean, if it continues to be as chaotic as it's been the last few years, the momentum will sustain itself because I think people will just be accustomed to a more turbulent existence. I think otherwise it will require us to really keep the profession's feet to the fire and make sure that we don't lose the opportunity that we have, which I think is unique in our lifetimes to reimagine things. I think the case or the pitch that I would make is that we know that there are problems in our profession that impact not only our clients, but us as professionals. And this is a real chance to do something about that and think differently. And, you know, there's all this sort of buzz in the media about lawyers have been so innovative the last few years. I don't think we've really been innovative because I think innovation is like a structured process for thinking through better ideas. But I think what we did show is that we're capable of changing because we were forced to. And I don't know if three years ago, people would have said lawyers can change. (laughs) But we see it at the law school level. If you walked into a law school faculty lounge in January 2020 and said you had to teach one class on Zoom, you would have had a revolt. And there we were. You know, we did it and we learned a lot from it. But I don't think we want to be caught off guard again in the future. I think we'd rather have a plan. And I think through working with our colleagues in other disciplines, we can teach what that plan might look like. As you think about the plan, as you think about strategy and change in the law firm environment going forward, how do you account for the regulatory challenges that are out there, both you know the Arizona, the Utah experimentations, the California setback, the ABA resistance? How does that work into your design thinking? I mean, it plays really prominently into the work that we do, especially through Jim's work. Jim is very active in advocating for regulatory reform. We were all very disappointed at the outcome in California. It factors into it. I guess I would say there's sort of plan A and a plan B. If regulatory reform doesn't take hold across the country quickly, then plan A can still work. You can still use design thinking to make incremental improvements in any environment, whether that's in a practice group environment or that's a firm-wide initiative or it's on the business side of the firm. If regulatory reform takes hold, I think it opens up more opportunities to be more experimental and to be more innovative in ways that we haven't been able by, for example, partnering, literally partnering in organizations and businesses with people who don't have a JD and are bar admitted to infuse our business models with different ways of thinking and different training that I think complements our training really well. But there is, of course, as you noted, massive resistance to that concept. So. We're not going to stop working on what we're working on because of the resistance, but we see the opportunity that that change could unlock. Fair enough. So tell us a little bit about the Future of the Profession initiative at Penn, which is related to all this, I presume. But is it a separate entity? And if so, what what is its mission? 
FPI is housed at the law school. It's not separate. It's a separate department at the law school that's new in the last three years. We really focus on three different areas of reimagining the future of the legal profession. We're very broad when we talk about that. Our primary objective is to reimagine the way that we deliver legal services because the structures that we've created have ensured that almost nobody gets access to legal services. I don't think that's what any lawyer would want or should want out of the profession. And we're also focused, as I mentioned, on attorney health and well-being and diversity and inclusion, both because we think it's important for the people that populate the profession, but also because we think if lawyers are healthier and happier, and if we have more diversity in the profession and are able to retain more diverse talent, that retention will fuel our primary objective, which is to have more diverse viewpoints and more high-performing professionals who are able to innovate and think differently about the future of the profession. So those are our three main areas of focus. As I mentioned, we're interdisciplinary in everything that we do. We are part of a group at Penn called the Penn Innovation and Entrepreneurship Group, which is a cohort of leaders of innovation efforts at schools and centers all around Penn. And to your earlier point about Kat talking about her experience with radiology and what she's learned from it, I feel like if you put me in an MRI machine and followed me around Penn, when I get to meet all these people from different disciplines, all these dormant parts of my brain would be lighting up because you can see, you know, you, you're thinking laterally. You can see how this thing from the healthcare context would have to be modified, but could have applications in legal or the same. You know, we have a great colleague, Michael Golden, who runs the Catalyst Center, the Graduate School for Education. And when we described to him all the challenges facing the civil justice system, he said you could basically say all of the same things about the education system. He said the only real difference is that you have a politically mobilized force in the education context in that people are voting on it. People are joining school boards to lobby against certain things. The civil justice crisis is different because there is no consumer outrage because people aren't even necessarily aware that it exists, including lawyers. But we can take what Michael's experience working with principals and superintendents and teachers and try to adapt that for working with courts and judges and practicing lawyers in the private and public interest. So FBI's work falls into three different categories. One is teaching. So we all teach different classes. Jim teaches a class on leadership. Miguel teaches a class on data, technology, and access to justice. And I teach design thinking modeled after Cat Moon's class. Our second category are thought leadership programs, our conferences, webinars. We have a podcast and a newsletter. And our third category are transformative projects. Jim and Chief Justice McCormick are helping to inform a new legal problem-solving lab that we're developing through FPI. And we have a few projects that Jim's spearheading as well on form simplification and data aggregation in state courts so we can get a handle on what's actually happening in state courts and then learn from it and develop responses. So we we try to teach, lead, and transform. Wait a minute. Take a step back. Legal problem-solving lab sounds fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So I, I don't want to s- sort of uh, beat Jim to the punch. And, and I'm not looking to steal anybody's thunder. Just give us a gem. No. Just so the, the essential idea is that we want to take what we think is a really special opportunity that presents itself in the form of all of these relationships we've built around Penn's campus. And we want to surface needs from the market of consumers and small businesses and court systems 
that are currently not being served, the litigants and the, and the small businesses in particular. And we want to draw students from around Penn's campus, including law students, but not exclusive to law students, to have them attack these problems and come up with new ideas for how we might develop better solutions and then work in the lab, not necessarily out in practice at the beginning, to test those solutions, to get litigant feedback, to get judicial feedback, to iterate them, and then to see what we can do with them in translational work for the real world. So we are in early days. Jim is going to announce that lab later this fall at our conference. So that's why I'm hesitating to to not steal his thunder. But it's something that we're really excited about. And there are lots of models at Penn that we're learning from, as well as other law schools that already have mature labs, like Stanford does a lot of work in this area as well. And of course, Penn's new president was the dean at Stanford Law School when they launched their lab. So we're excited about that. Uh, That's fabulous. So you get students who come to your class about design thinking or modern law firm strategy or or Jim's class. And the question I get asked sometimes when I have the chance to teach or talk to law students is, we're excited for change. But when we go into a law firm, we're going in as the newbies, the people with less credibility. And how do we deal with the resistance to doing things differently that we're likely to encounter in a law firm? What what advice do you give the students for how to deal with that dynamic? Yeah, and I see it all the time, right? I see alumni who really want to be creative and, and that gets tamped out of them and they leave and they go to another firm and they do something different. My advice to the students would be to be really careful when you're choosing a firm and to really explore When the firms say that they're innovative and they're future-oriented, what does that actually mean for you as a junior associate? Are you going to have any involvement in those innovation projects? What is the experience of other associates who propose new ideas? And really do your homework. You know, there are some firms now that offer billable hours for innovation. I'm not sure what that means at different law firms, but that would be something to explore if you're somebody who really wants to deploy your creativity is looking for those firms. I would say my bigger piece of advice would actually be to the law firms because I get to work every day with the future top talent of the legal profession. And they're not really interested in joining a firm that is backward oriented in its mentality or is not interested in changing. And if you're a firm that's in a war for talent and you want these brilliant minds coming to serve your clients, then I think it's incumbent on the firms to come up with real opportunities for junior associates to dig into that. And I've just seen it. I don't have data for this. I haven't done research on it. I could just see it with my own eyes that in my classes, when students get the opportunity to attack the problems in the profession, it bonds them with one another. It teaches them collaboration skills. It teaches them client centricity, which is what firms want their junior attorneys to learn, whether their clients are internal or external to the firm. And it elevates their well-being. I could just see it. So my advice to them is do your homework. My advice to the firms is offer more opportunities. And I don't think it's even that difficult to do for a firm. No, I don't think it is. You've got such an interesting portfolio that you've described to us, yet your background looks at the beginning looks very traditional. Undergrad at Penn, law school at Penn, law clerk, litigation associate. Then you went to work as a chief of staff at the Philadelphia City Legal Department. What was it about that journey that led you to this path within the profession? 
Oh my gosh, what a huge question. I would say that at this point in my life, I'm comfortable saying that I really was an underperforming law student who struggled a lot, especially with depression and anxiety and imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome was not a phrase that existed when I was a student. And I didn't know other people felt that way. I felt that even more when I went. Trust me, there are many of us that did (laughs) without the name for it. Well, you know what? You know, when I learned this, I didn't learn until 10 years later when I came back to the law school, which made me nervous because I was so anxious when I was a student. And my first job there was overseeing the law student professional development program. But I was also a career counselor as 50% of my job. And I would see these brilliant students come into my office. Just bro- I mean, I would look at their resumes. because That was my job. They were brilliant. And they would sit there and say, I'm not good enough to be here. And I'm not smart enough to understand civil procedure. And I said, first of all, nobody understands civil procedure first year. <laughs> like, <laughs> unless, you're, unless you have any context for CivPro, there's no way to understand it. But they genuinely their self-confidence tanked in the first year. And then i that was when I realized, oh, I was not unusual when I was a student. This is really common. And so this was 2013. I was taking baby steps at introducing little well-being programs into my portfolio of programs that I was running. And then over time, the Hazelden Ford report on lawyer well-being came out. And then the National Task Force report on lawyer well-being came out. And there was just an explosion of energy around this topic. And I was lucky enough that we had been building it sort of quietly in the background. And then my colleague, John Hallway, who runs our Criminal Justice Reform Center, the Quattrone Center, and is also interested in these topics, came to me and said, why don't we design a module on well-being and deliver it in all the professional responsibility classes, not a standalone, but something that's actually intimately related to the work that you're going to do as lawyers. Our dean was really receptive to it. We launched the pilot program. It's still going and it's really successful and, and feels great to teach it in an actual class. But I started to really think about like if this thing is so fundamental to so many lawyers' experiences and nobody was talking about it, what else are people not talking about? Where are the other flaws in the system? And I had been teaching law firm business strategy at that point for about six years when I was asked to do the innovation working group. And every year, everybody would say, this is the time when law firms are really going to revolutionize their business. This is the time when technology is going to take hold and we're not going to use the billable hour anymore. And post-Great Recession, certainly, everything was going to change. But nothing was changing. And then I got really frustrated and aggravated about it. And I learned that if you become chirpy enough about things, somebody tasks you with actually solving it at a certain point. (laughs) So that's how I got involved in innovation. If you had told me when I was that scared one owl who was anxious and had imposter syndrome that like someday my job would be reimagining all of this, the entire profession, when I thought I didn't even belong in it to begin with, I would have said you were out of your mind. But I don't know. I guess in hindsight, it all makes sense. (laughs) It didn't feel that way along the way. (laughs) Life has a tendency to work that way, doesn't it? I know we've run a bit over our time, but if you've got a few more seconds, tell us about Creative Lawyers, uh, which is the venture you launched earlier this year, I think. Yeah. So Creative Lawyers is my entrepreneurial side hustle in which I go out to the profession and teach creativity and innovation, primarily in law firm contexts, though I've done it in corporate legal departments and prosecutors' offices. I am really, really passionate and interested in creativity as a teachable skill and in the deficiency of creativity in our profession. I don't think many lawyers think of creativity as being important at all. And in fact, that's what the statistics show. 
there's an American Association of Law School surveys that ask incoming law students how many of them think creativity is important for the practice of law. And 3% said that creativity matters in law. By the time they get through law school, we've beaten that out of them because at graduation, 0% think creativity is actually important in law. I think the future requires us to teach creativity the way that we teach other curricular aspects of what we're doing to prepare people for the profession. So Creative Lawyers is really my effort to dig more deeply into that vein of innovation and go out and teach and speak and talk about creativity with lawyers. And I also love helping lawyers just reconnect with their own humanity. We are all naturally creative at birth. We do things our whole lives that bring us joy just for the sake of doing it. And I think the further you get into the profession starting in law school, the more we get away from it because we just don't have the time to engage in it. So I think if I can help lawyers see that engaging this other side of our brain not only feels good and elevates our well-being, but actually can help us respond to what is a really nebulous future better. That's music to my ears because I've talked for years about creativity and curiosity being components for how you drive the change dynamic and how as lawyers, it's beaten out of us because we move forward by looking backward, right? So that's not the most creative way to do things. How do you deal with the risk tolerance challenge that you know lawyers are trained to minimize and look for risk And one of the things that I find as an essential part of creativity is the willingness to try different things, even if they don't work. How do you deal with that dynamic among lawyers in the profession? 100%. I actually find that lawyers are open to the idea that we need to complement this risk aversion with something different if we're going to thrive in the future. I really enjoy, to be frank, working with lawyers who are already sort of on board and understand that our training with respect to risk assessment, risk aversion, issue spotting, that's totally essential for what we do as lawyers. And I would never say, you know, we should look at everything in this creative lens, certainly not for our legal analysis. But what I would say is that you're strengthening your own ability to be strong as a business or as a lawyer in the future if you learn how to balance that component of your training with something different that actually makes you a stronger professional. And that piece of it, that second piece has been so deficient in our training that it really obscures all the opportunity that's out there in front of us, either to do the things that we want to do to improve our business models, to improve our client service, or just to feel better and really connect with that inner part of ourselves that loves to be creative that we don't get a chance to do. So I would say that's the first piece. The second piece is finding like safe projects to work on. You know, I'm not suggesting that a law firm lawyer with a really major client should go in and try to ideate new ways to serve that client with no guardrails in place and no protection around them in that environment. But I would say that there are places, particularly with junior attorneys, where you can offer them the opportunity to be in a comfortable environment where they learn resilience and experimentation and iteration, like you're saying, maybe with an internal project. Maybe they're being tasked with thinking through what a new technology might look like at the firm and playing around with it and giving feedback and understanding, maybe doing empathy interviews with the lawyers who are going to be using it. And you're sort of trying to build a coalition of the willing, but you're not putting anything at risk. You're just helping people build skills to future-proof your firm. Well, that's uh, that's fabulous advice. Uh, uh, Jennifer, I could keep this conversation going for a long time because the things you're doing are so interesting and you're doing such cool stuff. It's tough to put down the microphone here. 
Oh, you're so kind, Stephen. <laughs> if they want to find more about Creative Lawyers, they can go to creativelawyers.net. That's right. And Jennifer, thank you so much. And good luck with your uh, your conference uh, this winter. Oh, Stephen, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for everything you do for the profession. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.